Welcome to the Broadcast to Post podcast. In today's episode, we will explore the exciting world of AI with a focus on ethical adoption in the creative business realm. Get ready to dive into AI tips, tricks, and future thinking as we discuss the implications of AI on creativity and its potential to enhance productivity. Joining us once again are Morgan Pagraki and Carl Soule from Adobe, a company that has consistently pioneered AI features within the Adobe Creative Cloud. In fact, just in the past year, Adobe has taken a significant leap forward with the introduction of generative tools like Adobe Firefly. It's worth noting that Adobe is also at the forefront of discussions surrounding the ethical use of AI, making them the ideal guests for this episode. Let's get into it. One, how can AI technologies benefit creative teams and editors in terms of speeding up tasks and streamlining workflows today? Well, I think the way that Adobe is starting to approach the use of AI tools is really around taking a look at what sort of creative processes are either redundant or are tedious parts that are not really necessarily core creative work and figuring out how we can automate some of that process to give you a little bit more creative time back. Well, to add to what Morgan said, I'm just amazed at the fact that here we are in 2023, assistant editors are still manually syncing picture and sound sometimes. You know, if you think about all the non-creative tasks that are still in the editorial process, those are the areas that we really want to try and address. Um, You know, it's not a matter of taking anything creative away from the people that want to be creative. It's just when you start to dive into what people do on a regular basis. You know, something that we addressed before was uh, the ability to automatically duck music underneath dialogue. You know, that's a task that involves clicking four times for keyframes for every single time you want to do that. And if we can automate those processes so that an editor or an assistant editor, and I really want to get assistant editors back into the actual process of being an assistant editor and not a data wrangler or file wrangler, um, you know, if we can get them back into doing sound design, um, where the, the, the tedium goes away and what we end up with is something that now I can actually spend the time to really fine tune this, get it to sound the way I want, get things to look the way I want. That's really the goal that we want. So what are some examples of AI powered tools or features that can significantly enhance the creative content generation process for post professionals and creative pros? I'll start with my favorite, which is Remix. Uh, it, it was a feature that existed in Adobe Audition uh, and then was brought over into Premiere Pro a little over a year and a half ago. But uh, as someone who has zero sense of rhythm whatsoever, it's a really great tool if you want to be able to uh, auto-remix music down to any specific given length that you specify. So let's say I want to take a song that might be 2 minutes and 30 seconds long and reduce that to a 30-second spot. Um, Remix will analyze all of the beats within that given uh, clip of music and remix it down to that specific length. Um, I feel like that has been a massive time saver for me personally. Um, I can't tell you how many hours I've wasted in the past trying to, um, you know, light up the beats and, and try to remix it myself. I've just got no sense of rhythm. So that's probably my favorite. See, I used to do that professionally. I worked at a radio station and a client would come in for a commercial and say, hey, I've got this four minute song and I absolutely need this as the background music for the commercial that we're doing. Can you do something with it? But you got to preserve the beginning and you got to preserve the end. And I want the overall feel of the music, you know, 
go ahead and do it. You've got an hour. You know, it's just, it used to drive me crazy. So yeah, when I saw Remix, it was just like, oh goodness, you know, I can easily just drag the end of the clip and it just automatically does the work for me. Um, you go into other stuff. I mentioned auto ducking before, but, uh, you know, some of the things like dealing with social media, you know, I, I grew up in a world of watching films on four by three pan and scan television for so long. And when widescreen became the norm, I got super excited about it. And of course, now we live in a world of nine by 16, one-to-one aspect ratios. Um, the whole idea of being able to automatically uh, do the adjustment so that your 16 by 9 footage, uh, we follow the the um, the intent, we follow the main focus of the video um, and do that work automatically for you in Premiere is one of my favorite features. So we need to get into the ethical considerations. Um, what kind of considerations should creative teams in post keep in mind when they are utilizing AI tools in this industry? Yeah, it's a tricky subject because right now there's not any sort of, um, you know, legalese in place to help uh, dictate kind of what the rules of the road are. And at this point, it really is the Wild West. What used to take a year as far as development time is concerned is now taking a day to two when you consider the pace of how quickly a lot of the AI tools and startups are moving. Uh, but I think one thing that is important to note is that, you know, it's our intention to build all of our generative AI tools from the ground up with uh, some sort of um, commercial intention in mind, meaning we want to be able to provide our users with some level of security uh, as far as um, copyright is concerned. Uh, we want to make sure that all of the models that we're training on, uh, those users that are, you know, providing stock content for that are getting compensated in some capacity. And ultimately, we want to make sure that what we are putting forward isn't going to completely eliminate any sort of creative process. We want to make sure that we remain creator focused. But I think over the next uh, several months, maybe a year or two, we're going to see a lot of regulations come out around, you know, the ethics and and how AI is is meant to be deployed at a large scale. But I think, um, you know, setting out with the right intentions and ensuring that, uh, you know, copyrights are are still being abided by is is really the fundamental um, north star of where I think a lot of our technology is in Jayon. I one way I can look at this, if you're looking for something today that kind of shows the direction of the compass and where Adobe wants to head with this, we did a, a technology preview at our Max Trade show probably about five or six years ago of something called Project Voco. You can look this up. Um, what it was, was uh, an engine that would listen to a spoken word and actually build a voice model based on that to a point where you could just type in text and it would spit out you know, something that sounded like the person speaking. Um, it immediately raised alarm bells. And I still get questions to this day about when is Project Boko coming? Well, it's not. <laughs> we looked at that and said, from an ethical standpoint, you know, that's not something that we want to do. But if you look at Adobe Podcast, there's a feature in there called Enhanced Speech, which is designed to take uh, existing spoken word and recreate what is being spoken with the same tone and inflection of the person speaking. And we're using it for an amazing noise cleanup tool so that you can record in a really, really noisy environment. And, you know, again, there's an example of an ethical use of 
the same type of technology where, you know, if AI can recreate the voice, but eliminate, you know, the fountain in the background, the train going by, you know, those types of things, that's exactly what we want to do with, with generative AI. And it's also important to note that there is, there's, and and this isn't a bad thing, but there's also a hesitancy to within a lot of our users to truly embrace a lot of AI technology right now because there there does seem to be a little bit of a lack of transparency with a lot of the tools that are coming to market. So another thing that we're really focused around is building in content credentials um, as as part of our process, which means that you as a creator would be able to specify whether or not you want to attach do not train credentials to any piece of content that you're generating um, to make sure that, you know, it doesn't go into other large training models in the future. Or uh, alternatively, if you want to be able to to track what has been altered to an image, um, you know, those are credentials that we also want to be able to expose um, to, to just provide that extra level of transparency to how a lot of this content is being created. When you look at uh, programs like Project Voco, you know, there's I, I think there is a very reasonable um, hesitancy with uh, the potential of things like deepfakes. And we're hoping that, you know, providing things like those content credentials is really going to help combat a lot of those uh, concerns. So um, in that idea, because there's no strong legal or governmental framework, are you seeing businesses come up with policies on how employees are going to use AI for work? Do those policies differ between someone simply cleaning up text or cleaning up imagery or actually creating creative content uses using generative AI? There's a few. Yeah, there there are policies that are actively being written, probably as we're having this conversation right now. Um, but, you know, I think from a uh, positive standpoint, businesses are looking at a lot of these tools and seeing the potential for being able to reduce carbon emissions and photography costs and being able to quick, quickly swap out backgrounds, let's say, for instance, for product photos. Let's say you've got uh, a, a new watch brand where you have different um, band materials that you want to be able to swap between. Being able to do that digitally rather than having to actually shoot every single variation of any given product uh, not only saves a lot of time, but also cuts down on uh, on just costs in general. I think the the real floodgates will open once training the ability of being able to train your own model comes out, which is something that we are also actively pursuing as well. Because at the end of the day, you as an organization have your own set of fonts, let's say, for instance, that you have to adhere to as part of your brand guidelines. Um, being able to feed in your own library of IP into generative AI tools is going to re ultimately result in a lot more specific results, which I think is going to truly, you know, expedite the entire production pipeline as far as time to market for a lot of these deliverables that teams are being uh, tasked with uh, creating. So I think uh, once we get to that level where training your own models becomes a little bit more um, enterprise friendly, um, it is something we are working on. It is not yet available today. I do want to be clear about that. I think we're going to see a lot more policies come forward and how these tools are being used. Yeah. If you go to the Content Authenticity Initiative website, you can see that Adobe is one of hundreds of partners that's working on this idea of credentialing things. I like to think about it with a, uh, a problem that we have right now where we see like After Effects artists that are doing compositions with 
200, 300, 400 layers. Um, there are custom scripts people have written to actually go through and check the rights and clearances on every single piece of content because that one little tiny image that's maybe, you know, 15 pixels in the corner of this larger composite, if you don't have the rights to that, that can open you up for liability. So I think we're going to start to see similar style tools coming in the next year or so um, that are going to be able to do that type of checking and that type of work so that before you publish, before you send something out, you might have to run some type of a script and just double check and make sure that, you know, not only is, you know, the existing content cleared, but anything that's been generated by AI has gone through some kind of a clearance. And legally, I mean, we're still in just this gray area. We're going to have to see court cases come to market or come to come to the courts and actually showcase, uh, you know, what is legal and what's not. If I'm borrowing or if the AI engine borrows the artistic style of a known artist and generates something new with it, where does the line lie? You know, we've seen this uh, talking about music. You know, we've seen all kinds of cases of, you know, did Led Zeppelin borrow this? Did they not borrow this? You know, and, and it's always been up to the courts to decide. We're now going to start to see that with generative AI content, and that's going to be coming to the courts probably in the next year. I will say one thing I did see in the news that is really interesting on the music front is, uh, you know, some artists have come forward saying, if you want to use my likeness, I'll go 50-50 with you on any of the proceeds from it. I think Billie Eilish, was it? Oh, no, sorry, not Billie Eilish. It was um, Grimes. It was Grimes that, um, that that offered that. So I think that's an interesting uh, uh point that I don't know a lot of other artists would be willing to cut that deal necessarily. But if you look at a lot of the AI music that's coming out, I mean, um, it, I, I think music is probably going to be the first court case that we see oh, yeah. come come to market. And it raises the question of, uh, you know, w where is the line in terms of art uh, inspiring other arts? And I think that that's an, it's an interesting fine line we're going to have to walk. And, and it's going to be a new thing. You yeah. know, we've got now, you know, are the estates of like Johnny Cash and Elvis going to be upset that somebody used an, a generative AI engine to make those artists sing Baby Got Back, for example? <laughs> you know, it's like, where where do you draw the line with that? And uh, yeah, it's it's a whole new area that we've got. And that's probably going to end up being sussed out in the courts with copyright issues, probably, you know, along the lines of, Back in the day, Vanilla Ice got sued for using Queen samples. So th that sort of thing is 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 definitely going to you know come back to to roost for us. Um, so let's get out the crystal ball app on our phones. And where do you envision the collaboration between AI systems and human creative professionals in the post field evolving to in say the next five to ten years? Well, if you look at some of the tool advancements that we've made over the last two years, um, you know, it's 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 all been building on top of each other. Uh, when we first introduced something like speech to text, for instance, where we um, gave our users the ability of transcribing a sequence in order to create a captions track that then waterfalled into us listening to a lot of our users asking to transcribe clips on import and being able to actually uh, put together a sequence based off of that transcript. So basically bringing that process earlier into the edit process and being able to pick out sound bites. Um, you know, I think when when you look at the future of how this is going to evolve, I see 
and this is maybe my own personal wish list, but I see some really amazing potential with things like um, AI translation of content. I think um, Squid Game has taught us all in a, an important lesson that like international content can be really awesome and expose us to new stories and, and new uh, ways of of telling stories that I think really um, you know resonate with a global audience. And I think if we layer in the ability of actually adding in you know some of that translation element to truly make content that is global. Um, and can reach a much wider audience. I think that's going to fundamentally transform what types of stories we consume, what what types of stories get made. Um, and ultimately, I'm I, I think variety content variety is a good thing. And I I always want to see new stories that aren't the same. You know, six uh, story tropes that we see uh, with uh, you know a lot of the the content that that's on streaming services today. So I'm personally really excited about that. What are you excited about? Well, I one of the things that always has driven me nuts when I'm doing editing is actually looking for the stuff that I need that's relevant for the given part of any given timeline. You know, if I'm currently cutting something and I know that I need B-roll for a particular shot, having something that in a way is kind of a helper or an assistant to say, you know, oh, we're talking about ice skates. Let me show you all the shots that have ice skates in them. You know, having that recognition going on. Um, you know, I do think that we're going to see an explosion of, uh, animation, uh, generated, particularly like text-based animation. I think you're going to start to see, uh, that's an area that I think is open for interpretation where if I need to see, I don't know, letters, uh, with like made of molten gold dripping down or something like that, you know, that's, um, something that's way outside of my skill level as far as animating, but I would love to be able to find something like that and be able to use it. So I think the generative AI side is is going to impact that, I think, in a big way. You know, there was an interesting conversation we were having at an AI event last week where a lot of the a lot of the users were were talking about, you know, the ability of extending their skill sets. Um, into areas like 3D or animation for that matter. I might not be an animator by trade, but the tools that are coming to market right now are going to enable me to become an animator just based off of describing the types of frames and video clips that I want to see. And I think that in itself is going to completely fundamentally transform um, you know, what stories get told just like the localization element does, because there's you've probably got a really great story that you could tell. I know that I've got movie ideas that I could tell, but the process of learning an entirely new, you know, animation pipeline is really daunting to a lot of us. So it's going to um, enable a lot more creators to be able to create and tell stories in the way that they they have that story constructed in their mind, which I think is fascinating. There's there's one other area that I think a lot of people are underestimating at this point, and that is going to be just the wholesale generated uh, video content, film content. Um, if you want to see where we are where we are today, uh, I recommend looking up a little video called Pepperoni Hug Spot. It's uh, it's really really scary looking at this point, but the thing to understand is that you know this is technology that didn't exist maybe a year ago and now they're already at a point where they're creating this type of uh, uh, commercial you know fake commercial content um, is it usable now no two years three years I think that's going to be a big area that we're going to have to look at I've, I've got a mental picture of Clippy saying 
I see you're trying to come up with a new tentpole movie. Would you like help with your script? So what measures is Adobe taking to ensure transparency and explainability in the AI algorithms that are being used within its tools for creative and post professionals? Uh, well, we alluded to this a little bit earlier, but content credentials is something that you can even begin to test out today, let's say in the Photoshop beta, that this is this is something that you, you can start to see the direction of where we're heading today. Uh, but being able to give users uh, and our creative users, I should say, the power of attaching things like do not train credentials to images is is one way we're thinking about this, but also providing transparency uh, to a lot of users that might want to be able to see what has been doctored in an image. Um, those content credentials exist in order to provide that trail of breadcrumbs, if you will. Um, but I think it's also important to note that, you know, the way our AI policies are, are currently set up today, um, you know, we don't, we don't obtain any of your uh, information. Uh, for instance, even if you're using something like speech-to-text or text-based editing, none of that information is stored on our side. And, um, you know, we want to make sure that we're providing that level of transparency to our users that, you know, it, I, I don't want you to feel as though you can't use this feature because you're concerned that your data is somehow being um, scrubbed at some point. Um, yeah. Anything else? Well, if you go to the Content Authenticity Initiative website, um, they actually show some examples of the idea of how this is going to be used, where you could take an image, drag it and drop it into an analyzing tool, and it would actually show you the source images that were created from this. Um, you know, I, I just think back, I remember when Photoshop added layers, um, a major newspaper in Northern California doctored an image of the state capitol and put snow on the roof and did all these things and put this huge headline that said this isn't real and wrote this really scary article about you know how this is going to change things forever we're never going to be able to tell what's real and what's not real i think this was written in like 1993 you know so here we are um and yeah there are cases of this and i think you know what we're going to see is this is going to continue to evolve but uh, i don't think it's you know, the sky is falling into the world type of scenario that some people want to say. Awesome. Um, can you, do you have any examples of success stories where creative teams and editors or other creative folks have used um, and leveraged AI tools to achieve exceptional results um, or to push the creative boundaries inside their work? I'd say the biggest success story of uh, this past year is we've recently just uh, released a tool called text-based editing, which I alluded to a little bit earlier. It's really geared towards a lot of unscripted folks and those in the documentary space that want to be able to take massive amounts of media and pick out those Frankenbite sounds uh, to help craft whatever story it is that you're creating. Uh, so I think since the introduction of text-based editing, we've, we've really seen an explosion of a lot of unscripted editors uh, be able to completely transform the way they work as far as, you know, being able to quickly find uh, certain moments that might exist, uh, you know, in a sea of content, but also, um, uh, uh, you know, expedite that entire editorial process to arrive at kind of what that rough cut is faster. I would say, you know, our reframe is a feature in the Premiere timeline and just handling the sheer volume of deliverables we have nowadays. It's no longer a matter of, you know, you lay something down to tape and you walk the tape over to the broadcast center and that's the master file and that's all you have to deal with. 
you know, nowadays you have to have, you know, a cut down version. You've got promo teams, you've got the social media teams delivering in multiple aspect ratios. So how do you take that one deliverable and make all the variants, all the shorter, longer versions of it, delivery for international? Um, so that's an area that I think we're, we're seeing a lot of, we're just helping, you know, it's not, it's not eliminating uh, anybody's position. If anything, it's making them more able to deliver what they need to deliver today. And I think that's a huge win. Okay, stay tuned for the Q&A. Live humans can ask questions about AI and where things are going. No robots asking questions. We'll be right back. All right, let's jump on in and um, get some of your questions answered on AI. Um, so Mia is asking, <clears throat> she's understanding that in making AI tools to reduce redundancies or tedious tasks in the process, but some of the Firefly examples that were shown, you showed um, they border on the creative process entirely. Um, is, is that correct? Does auto B-roll feature, for example, edit to the beat of the music? Does it do match cuts or does it stylize itself? Great questions. So uh, I'll start. I'll start at the top. So as far as a lot of the redundancies uh, that that we're slowly working over time to see what processes we can automate, we're keeping a really close dialogue with a lot of our creative community to ensure that we're not infringing on any part of that workflow that is truly creative. I think. Uh, if if we were live here, we could probably do a show of hands it, it, with how many people would miss things like rotoscoping, and I'm pretty sure nobody's hand would go up. I'm sorry if there are any rotoscopers here in the audience. Um, so I think um, you know our our strategy has always been to move forward with intention and to make sure that we're continually having that dialogue with the creative community to make sure that we're we're moving forward um, in a way that makes sense for a lot of our users. Because after all, if we're eliminating creatives, that's eliminating subscribers for us, and that's also a little bit counterintuitive. Yeah, I, I would just like to say thank you for, for asking those types of questions yeah. because those are exactly the types of questions that video was kind of designed to spark. Um, you know, everything in that sort of Firefly for Video future look um, those are ideas that we have at this point. And, you know, it's there, there's a line where we want to make sure we don't cross it. But at the same time, we do want to open up the capabilities. So how B-roll gets cut into something is those are the types of discussions that we're having on uh, on a regular basis with our customers. And Morgan and I do that on a regular basis is actually go to customer sites, kind of talk with them about their workflows. And, you know, that's it's a question we're asking. How is how do you want to see AI improve your job rather than replace it. And to to be totally transparent, that vision video is truly a vision. So as far as whether or not it's going to cut on the beat yet, that remains to be seen. Um, you know, I, I think the way we're envisioning B-roll to operate is really allowing our editors to be able to locate content faster. And so some of that might be through some sort of uh, tagging. Um, and, and again, this is purely speculative at this point. Nothing has been, you know, officially released or committed to as far as um, that's concerned publicly. Uh, on the Firefly side of things, though, uh, you are right, I, especially with text to image. I mean, there is a certain creative element uh, that, that that is layered in with that. And a lot of it is determined based on the syntax of how you craft that prompt, which is a new muscle that everyone here is learning at the same time. 
And one could argue that this is almost a leveling of the playing field as far as figuring out uh, how to get the sort of creative output that you want via just words. I would argue that I have yet to see an image that someone says, this is final pixel, this is what we want to move forward with, ship it. If anything, I see it more as pitch bins uh, or or at the very least some storyboard concepts as a jumping off point that you can continue to iterate off of. And I'm hopeful that this might actually help get some projects made that might not otherwise get made because there's lots of great ideas out there outside of the you know same franchises that we continually see over and over again. And if we can enable a wider swath of users to be able to create that uh, that initial concept idea to get that amazing idea they have in their head on a piece of paper to pitch to someone, there's a chance that maybe we'll get some new content that otherwise wouldn't get made. So I'm I'm choosing to look at it the glass half full. Uh, it's a fun tool to use, but I mean, there you are correct. There is a certain creative element that does come along with that. Yeah, uh, if you look at how like generative fill has been put into the beta in Photoshop. We're now seeing people using this as part of the whole creative process. You Can you generate an entire image with Firefly? Yeah, you can. But is it going to be exactly what you're looking for? Probably not. There is always going to be a process of kind of fine-tune, tweaking things, getting rid of that, adding something else over here. Um, and we just want to get you closer to that. You know, I like to think of it... There was a, an older feature in older versions of After Effects that was called Brainstorm, which I actually kind of miss, which was is the whole idea of you develop an animation and then you hit this button and it would give you nine variations on what you just did. And I used to use that pretty frequently to come up with like, oh, I didn't think about doing it that way. Let me go down that rabbit hole. And, you know, six hours later, you find, you know, you've created something completely different from what you started with. So almost like... A sounding board. Hey, exactly. I, this is what I've done. What do you think I could do differently? And then it sounds like you wound up spending more time on it than you than you thought you were going to. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, DF, uh, well, I'm sorry, James is asking first, um, when are the AI, when will the AI tools beta for video be open? It's a million dollar question. We wish we had an answer. Uh, those details are still forthcoming. So no dates uh, to, to talk about yet. Uh, but I would keep an eye on the uh, Adobe Firefly site because those those little boxes that say in exploration are uh, slowly becoming unlocked. So unfortunately, you got to just keep checking back. I wish I had a date. Yeah. Carl and I are really eager to use it. <laughs> If uh, you want to see the latest and greatest, just know that in the Creative Cloud desktop application, when you go to the Applications tab, there is a little icon for beta apps. That's where you access the Photoshop beta today. That's where you access the Illustrator beta today. Um, you know, We do have regular betas for After Effects and Premiere Pro that are listed there. Nothing in that video that we showed is currently in the beta, but if you want to be on top of the latest and greatest, you can have the beta installed at the same time you have the shipping version. Um, and we even saw that with um, speech-to-text, with uh, text-based editing, where people were actually using it in the beta and then opening up the shipping version to actually do their editorial work. So, I mean, there's times where you can actually use both together. Makes sense. So, um, on that discovery part of it, Oscar's asking, what, will you su- what would you suggest is the best way for us to learn how to use and to master these new AI tools. 
Well, first, it's get started as soon as you can. I think, as I mentioned before, we're all learning this at the same time. We're sort of building the plane as we're f- flying it, I think, to a certain extent. Uh, I would say if if you are opening up Firefly for the first time, take a look at some of the uh, hover over some of those images and see what the prompts are, the actual syntax of the sentences and start to play around with that. Start to look at some of the images that you really like the style of and try to emulate some of that language in your prompts. Uh, It is a little bit of trial and error at first, so be patient with it. I think the the main thing to remember is just really describe the point of view that you wanna see as far as what's included in the frame. I think that's the number one thing that most people forget when they first get started in, in trying out some of these prompts. But it is it is a little bit of a process and it is getting better uh, all, all the time. I think, um, you know, initially when the first, you know, Firefly announcement went out, I think back in March, um, you know, the prompt quality was good, but it wasn't nearly as great as it is today. And it's slowly getting better and better over time as well. So I think, um, you know, patience is key. And I, I think you've got to really take a look at how you're structuring those sentences is the best advice I yeah, and Firefly gives you an amazing tool for doing that right on the page. You know, like what you mentioned, being able to click on a, an example picture and see what the prompt is, use that prompt as sort of a sounding board or a starting point for your own idea of what you want to create. It's an awesome way of learning this. I actually skipped over that when I first jumped into it. I just wanted to get right to the prompt and start typing in random stuff. And uh, I went back later and realized, oh, wait, if I... I can click on these images and that becomes my uh, my beginning point. Yeah, a good, uh, a, f- a fun exercise is try to describe frames from like a known movie or TV show that you like. Uh, I've I found that that's kind of helped me refine a little bit of my uh, prompt style. I'll, I'll take a, you know, an, an image for, or some concept art from, you know, let's say a, a Disney property and continually try to refine that. And I felt like that's helped. Um, and there's there's a lot of people online that are also like posting pictures uh, of, that were generated using uh, Firefly. And it's almost like, can you guess this this frame, which I think is is pretty cute. So it's, it's kind of like going back to the early days of search engines. When we first saw Google, we didn't really know what to type in that box. And as time goes on, we type things that don't seem to make sense to humans. But guess what? That 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 Google thing figured it out for me. Um, Joe is asking when speaking of skills of someone like a video editor, they've got the balance of the tech and the creative. Is there a fear that the tools that are being created, um, might affect the profession, profession of video editing and someone like a story producer will be more than able to do the work? Well, we're already seeing people like directors jumping in and actually being sort of like director slash editor. And that's, that's a simple fact today. Um, the only people that I'm concerned with is I have known some assistant editors that really, they don't really want to get involved in the editorial side of things. They want to be syncing picture and sound, maybe doing like a line cut of a scene or something like that. That's based on the script. Those are the types of jobs that I would be kind of concerned with. You definitely want to have that creative, uh, part in the mix. You know, if you're not already you know, obviously anybody who's professional knows what a J cut and an L cut is, but that's the type of stuff I don't think getting the timing down for that, that AI is going to immediately jump in and be able to, to do that type of work. Um, just a, a, a tiny, tiny example. I think you do need to have that creative spirit 
And how many films do we know of that were like rescued in the edit bay or were completely reworked in the edit bay? You know, being able to cut to a script is like day five of a production that might take the editorial post-production might take nine months to a year to actually finish the film. So if you're able to tell a story, you're still going to have value Absolutely. to the process. If you're just going in there and, and, and putting stuff to, if you're, if you're just a technical person as opposed to a storyteller, you may want to rethink where you're looking at your training. Because the other thing is there's a big difference in, the, in those cuts between dramatic timing and comedic timing. Absolutely. Sometimes you need that pause there to make it funny. See, I just made it funny just with a pause. Um, what are some of the ways that um, uh, Adobe is keeping uh, AI creator focused? So we're, we're thinking about this in a number of different ways. And we'd also love to hear from the community if there's other efforts that we could be putting forward as well. The first of which is making sure that the models that we are training uh, Firefly on are all, all of that content, all those stock contributors are properly um, paid. And I think that's that's one of the areas that's a little bit of a gray area because there's a lot of large models out there that is pulling from copyrighted content. And I do think we'll probably see some some uh, legalese come in the next couple months here that may or may not prevent against that. But I think step one, as far as we're concerned, is making sure that any sort of content that Firefly is being trained on, those those creators are, are properly compensated, similar to how our stock contributors are, are compensated today. I, I also think being able to give our users that ability of attaching do not train credentials to their content is the other lever of, of control that we can offer this, this circumstance, especially considering that's your IP. If you've got a very specific stylized um, uh, way you work and you don't want large models emulating any of that, we want to make sure that those users have the ability of completely blocking that from occurring as it is. Um, but again, we'd really like to hear from our community if there's other measures that we should be considering because this is the, the, the pace at which we are moving is very fast. And we recognize that some some things are going to have to change as far as how we think about um, you know ethical AI. And at the end of the day, I'm we're we're a company made of creatives. So I think um, making sure that we don't cut anyone out of that process is really key. Human fingers in control of the end product. That's one of the things that I kind of like to look at. If you look at some of the older features we talked about with uh, the Sensei-driven features, you know, things like color match are designed so that it's basically the AI turning the controls that you have access to. It's not a black box that you have to turn on or turn off and you either accept it or you reject it. Um, it's about getting you closer to that finish line so that you do have the ability to go in and you know, if you're not tweaking it for 20 minutes, you're now just tweaking it for three to five minutes. It just means you're going to be able to accomplish more. And we all know we've got more deliverables to uh, to produce these days. Um, so, you know, that's that's where I think we can really, really make um, make a difference is making sure that, you know, any of these features having some way of making sure that a human being has the final say-so, has the final ability to say, that's close, but let's just move it over here a little bit. And I think that's going to help a lot. And I think one of the other things that will be interesting there is, okay, I don't want my style duplicated for anyone else to possibly use, but 
okay, let's train it to learn how I would cut mm -hmm. or how Andy, our editor who put together our, our pre-roll packages cuts so that, okay, I can use that training of how I work for my work. It's not available to everybody, but okay, cut this in my style, go. And then I've got a nice rough to begin with, which kind of gets me part of the way to the story. And it's using my own storytelling abilities to help me tell a story. So that could be, that could be kind of cool. Um, Luke is wondering if there's any, if, if you can say any specific plans for AI and After Effects, what are the, possibly some of the tools you're planning to launch? Well, we don't, we don't really have any big announcements to make at this point. I mean, one area that I would definitely be interested in looking more into, if you see what's going on in Photoshop with subject selection, um, you know, stuff like Content Aware Fill was in Photoshop first. And then the After Effects team came out with Content Aware Fill for video. Um, the way subjects are being selected, you know, After Effects today has some really nice tools like Rotobrush. Uh, there's a, you know, Rotobrush 2 is something that came out a couple of years ago. But I definitely think that that's an area where we can see, um, if you just see what's going on with Photoshop as far as like a simple select subject on this, you know. And again, this is just pure speculation from my part, just knowing how like some of the past tools have migrated from Photoshop over into After Effects. Um, but that's definitely an area, you know, like we, we've talked about before, you know, if, if your primary skill right now is just doing rotoscoping, that's, you, you need to be thinking about what else you can, you can do, because I think we're rapidly reaching a point where selectively pulling something off the background, whether it's chroma keying or, you know, hand uh, masking something in and out. I think those days are going to be going away. And in my mind, good riddance, just the amount of time and effort that that takes is, uh, you know, I would rather be doing something else creative with the person that I've now isolated that's been dancing in the green screen. Yep. And that that's one of those questions that goes back to, okay, quality of life and work. Mm -hmm. I, yes, I could make a lot of billable hours doing this, but am I really happy at the end of the day? Does Is it fulfilling? Does it meet my my needs? to be a content creator. Um, so I, I, let's let's kind of do a follow along with this. Uh, Nicholas was wondering how and when we can turn stills of people into moving video of them, same person, even a few short seconds, rather than it just being a reference image and then a different image takes over. Um, I'm speaking mainly of Runway, ML, and Pika, which I'm playing with at the moment. So I think... The main thing that we have to be mindful of is is making sure that we're being ethical about that because I'm sure you could imagine what could theoretically be done in terms of deep fakes. So I think um, we're we we haven't made any sort of uh, solid plans to to release anything as far as you know animating an image is concerned. There have been instances in the past though where we at Adobe have had to uh, move away from certain research projects as a result of concerns around deepfakes. So I think I think that's probably going to be a consideration that we'll have to revisit at some point. I do know that there's some pretty interesting um, uh, potential for content localization for a global market and being able to almost reanimate someone's mouth let's say if they're um you know speaking if we want to localize that content into spanish or german or japanese i think that there's some really cool potential there because that would truly globalize what sort of content we consume in a very meaningful way 
I think we're still a little bit farther off from that just because we want to ensure that we're moving forward with the right intentions and the right guardrails set. Would you agree? I, I think so. Yeah. I mean, we're already seeing, you know, the Pandora's box is kind of open when it comes to things like spe- um, speech. I'm sorry, text to speech. My mouth was having trouble with that. Maybe we can we can we can use some AI to fix that. Um but yeah, using text to speech with a vocal model of a particular actor or actress, you know, now you're getting into some dangerous territory from a legal perspective of, you know, if you have an AI engine, you know, like we talked about before about, uh, you know, Morgan Freeman, you know, everybody wants Morgan Freeman to narrate their documentary, but how many people actually have the money for it? How much time does Morgan Freeman have? Um, if you have a vocal model for doing that, what does Morgan Freeman get out of it? You know, that's the type of thing that we would we have to kind of look at and see how we can. Also, I mean, in that instance, what happens, you know, after Morgan Freeman isn't necessarily a young person, what happens after they pass? Is that something where how do the royalties on something like that work out? I think there's a couple there's a couple instances of um, some cases specifically in the music industry that I think are really going to dictate at least on the, you know, on the vocal scale, how we're going to proceed in a lot of those instances. Yeah. I think music is going to really drive the law behind a lot of this as far as the use of voice. You know, we're already seeing stuff. If you, you know, all you have to do is go on TikTok to see, you know, Elvis singing Baby Got Back or what have you. You know, there's there's all kinds of crazy stuff that's out there today already. And uh, we just have to be, you know, we want to be really careful with how we approach that um, and make sure that we do it in an ethical manner. Well, and the other thing there also is that the localization business. So if I'm speaking and all of a sudden you need me to be speaking in Japanese, I've already done the performance in English. Mm-hmm. They're just altering my voice to do the same performance in Japanese. And then AI can come in and fit what my mouth is moving mm-hmm. to literally match what it should be in Japanese. It's the same performance. Exactly. The timing and cadence is a little different. Um, and, and the thing is that, that box is already open. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, if I was in the localization business, I would be concerned because it's, it's one of those iterative jobs that AI can easily take and, and make it simple. Uh, it, yes, it can speed up the process. As f- From what we've seen, though, there is always going to be a human element that's going to have to ensure that whatever that AI translation spit out is actually capturing the same sort of feeling behind it. I know that there have been a couple instances where, you know, some of s- some of the dubbed content that's out on streaming platforms right now is, has really kind of been uh, highlighted as this isn't the best translation in the world. And I think we're... we're we're still a little ways off from AI being able to translate a lot of that perfectly. Do I think, though, you know, in the midterm? Yes, I, I, I certainly agree with that. Yep. There is always going to have to have some sort of human oversight. And there's cultural context there. Yeah, apparently exactly. you don't badmouth broccoli in Japan. Who didn't? Yeah. Apparently, apparently people who did, they replaced the, replaced the vegetables in the bowl. So <laughs> AI doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Um, so Warren is asking, uh, there's an option to opt out of content analysis under the private privacy and personal data section of our Adobe account. Is that analysis of how we work or what we're working on? 
Uh, I believe that's that's the actual like image that gets generated. I believe that's the the opt out. Uh, but I mean, as far as as far as what we collect data on with with features like text based editing or speech to text, we don't store any of that data. Um, so that, that that's that's always that was actually like one of the first security concerns that a lot of our users were voicing to us as soon as we released those features. We're not storing any of the, you know, data that you type in there for, you know, speaker one, speaker two. Um, that's generally. No, traditionally part of the opt in, opt out has also had to do with the use of the application. And I want to be clear, it's not a matter of the type of content that you're creating. It's more a matter of the engineers looking and saying, oh, wait, we have all these different users are clicking all the way in the upper left. And now they're going all the way down to the lower right, and then they're going back to the upper left and back to the lower right. What are they doing, and why isn't that just in one location where they can we can make it go faster? Yep. Um, so that type of stuff is also something that some of those agreements have to deal with. And to be fair, uh, we take a lot of that data and inform some of our UI decisions based off of that. So if you're spending a lot of screen real estate going back and forth from one area of the screen to another... And there's an opportunity for us to make that a little bit smoother. That's where that data is useful to us, but it's it's purely used for user know, experience. User yeah. experience, yeah, exactly. Uh, Jay Asuri Hart is asking, where can we find recommended hardware specs for the entire Creative Cloud? Helpex. Adobe. Yeah. So I'm also assuming that the more AI and the more generative things there are in terms of graphics, that means better GPU would Probably preferred. Well, at this point, um, particularly with a lot of the Firefly-driven features, generative AI uses a heck of a lot of computing power. And I've seen some people do like case studies and talk about like what the difference of computing power to the cloud engines that are running things like Firefly versus what you can get in a maxed-out system with four GPUs locally. And the amount of processing in the cloud is so much higher than what you could actually do locally. Um, you know, there's different uh, system specs depending on like even what you're editing. You know, are you editing 8K red natively or are you cutting 1080p ProRes files? There's different processing involved in stuff like that. And as far as the, the generative AI stuff, um, the vast majority of what we're doing right now um, with Firefly is cloud centric. Um, now, Sensei driven features, which is more of our artificial intelligence and machine learning, a larger framework. Um, you know, that a lot of that does run locally and we are able to optimize the engines to run locally for that. Very cool. Um, let's see here. Gary's asking, how would you teach an AI to work within a corporate look and feel with regard to consistent photographic style, color combinations? How do you teach it the visual tone of voice? Call us. <laughs> uh, those details are forthcoming, but we are moving forward with the ability of training your own AI um, because specificity, especially within, you know, large corporate entities where you have a very established style uh, is is going to be a benchmark requirement for any sort of generative AI use. So those details are forthcoming, but that is something that we do want to enable our, our users to be able to to do. Yeah, we want to make sure and do it in a very secure fashion so that if there is sort of a custom spun-up engine that's been trained on a given company's intellectual property, that that remains separated out and it's just for their use. And that way you don't have to worry about, you know, that being used by other people. Yeah. 
treated just like regular content. Yeah, exactly. Um, Michael was asking, you quickly referred to using Firefly to create storyboards from script. Can you provide a bit more detail on how to do that? Sure. Uh, there are a couple instances that our team has been playing around with, with generating storyboard type concepts. So um, you can you can generate Firefly images in like the standard like sketch view for how we think about storyboards. It'll do that today. There's even some instances where some folks on our team have begun to play around with, is there a way that we can animate some of these images uh, to, to sort of start to emulate what could be a little bit more of a of a complete storyboard look, um, but those the, the it's it's still very early days, and I think mm -hmm. at this point it's Firefly is best used for generating concept imagery um, and getting some idea of of what the overall vision is for a project. But certainly not final pixel at this point. But if if you type in storyboard, I mean there there are art styles that you can select on the right-hand side of Firefly to um, to arrive at those sketch concepts. Yeah. Yeah, if, you're, if your script starts with, you know, exterior Venice on a bridge, you could try and build out some kind of a prompt that would give you sort of a baseline image. And then using tools in Photoshop where you're doing selective uh, generative work, like, you know, a person on the bridge, you know, I need, you know, a, a six-foot-tall, 50-year-old uh, male. And how, how tall are you? Uh, well, I'm five three hundred. Okay, uh, five three five three woman, uh, medium shot, something along those lines. I mean, you have the ability to kind of start to use this today to build out a picture, and then it's just a matter of using that as just a still storyboard in the same way that we're doing it today in a lot of cases. But also, Venice, Florida, Venice, California, yeah. Venice, Italy. Exactly. Where are we? I'm sure there's other Venices out there too. Um, DF has an interesting question here. In my experience, failure is part of the creative process. If we remove the challenges of pacing, finding shots, and the like, is there any thought that we'll be, we will be less diverse and creative in the bulk of our content? How could AI help to spark creativity and not stifle it? The, I think the one thing to also ask there is, if you, if you typed something in to, to generative AI and gotten something and went, oh, no, that's wrong. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all the time. Uh, I, I like to look at a lot of our generative AI tools as I'm working on a group project with someone that's actually going to do their their fair share of the work and it's going to suggest changes, but not take over any. Um, so I do think that there is still a certain amount of failure here just because a lot of these tools are so brand new and we're really still refining how we interact with them. Uh, but I think it's 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 kind of like if you're if you're playing around with uh, PowerPoint a lot, they they give you all of those different design options. Nine times out of ten, I always end up picking one of the the suggested design options because it gave me an idea that I didn't even consider before. So I do think I do think that there is there is the potential to arrive at or at least consider concepts that you might not have otherwise thought of to to overall help with that storytelling. Uh, but you're very right. I mean, there's there's loads and loads of instances where I find out exactly what I don't want. Um, and that also helps refine my opinion a little bit more. I, I think our eyes as viewers are going to evolve with this. You know, I think back to like the early days of motion graphic design and what was acceptable in the 1980s isn't acceptable today unless you're doing a retro, you know, throwback and you want to get that type of a look and a feel. 
Um, you know, I definitely think what you're going to see is some people are going to do it straight out of the box, just like they've used After Effects text animation presets straight out of the box to do their opens for their YouTube shows for years. And you can spot it immediately. You look and go, oh, yep, that's done in After Effects. I know that exact preset that was done to do that. I think with AI, it's going to be something similar. And what's going to be really fun and cool is we're going to have new styles that are going to come out because of this. Um, that leverage a bit of it, but do it in an interesting way that we can't even imagine right now. And that's also goes back to, I've been able to watch things on Netflix and I'm halfway through it going, I know the style. Uh, that's, that's so-and-so that cut this and I, I'll pop to the end. It's like, oh yeah, yeah he cut that. Because um, I just recognize just the, the way of, of working. So I, I have a feeling that's going to be part of the whole deal there too. Um, Jay is asking in an audition or premiere, Will there be an option or tool that will allow me to record my own voice and make changes to it so that it sounds like a new person? So if I'm creating a two-person interview situation, but there's really only one voice, um, it's me altered and me unaltered. And I, I would think I can I can do that today with conventional tools. Yeah. Yeah. You could pull that off. There's also text-to-speech in Audition that, I mean, we use that just to get a uh, kind of a placeholder for a voiceover today where you can drop in a speech and have like one of many different computer generated voices, uh, you know, give you a, a recorded wave file of it. I think that that's an area you're going to see improve upon. I think a lot of those voices today are, you can tell that they're... They're a little electronic sounding. And what's bizarre is there's also, uh, not bizarre, I'll say cool or quirky, is that you can also throw different accents on them, but it still sounds a little electronic. So I think that process is going to have to get refined a little bit more. And, and I think the other piece there is also um, there's a difference between sounding good and performing well. Exactly. I, 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 I very rarely heard scratch track audio done in an edit bay end up in the final mix. Other, other than Harrison Ford and Blade Runner, yeah, that's probably... <laughs> But it's Harrison Ford. He just always talks like this. <laughs> but that's the thing. If you if you listen to a lot of the AI examples where the voice has been artificially generated, there's not a lot of cadence in how they're presenting any of that content. It's usually pretty monotone, which I think is the other missing element to get us like that extra two percent towards true realism. Yep, and that's that's the difference. You know, that's what Morgan Freeman brings to the table, and we pay a lot for Morgan Freeman to do that for us. Um, let's see. Uh, Jonathan is saying, uh, as of today, he's using the Photoshop beta. Can Firefly creative content be used professionally? If you download any images today using the Firefly beta, they are watermarked. So it does say not intended for commercial use. Uh, so we don't have an exact date as to when that watermark will be removed and you can use it commercially, uh, but we are developing very, very quickly. Uh, it, you'll, you'll notice that if you've been using Firefly for the last couple of weeks, like there's, there's been updates to the site, uh, very regularly. So we don't have an, a specific date yet. They are intended to be, you know, beta images that are generated, but there is that watermark on them that says not intended for commercial use while it's still in beta. Understandable. Uh, Gary's asking, I've heard the I've heard the phrase promptography. Eventually we'll figure out how to pronounce that. Do you feel this will become a new skill set that we will have to adapt to? Yes, 100%. I'm already trying to adapt to it myself. Uh, I know that 
as far as um, some of the other third-party tools that exist out in the market today, there's one that I, I can't remember the name of, but you could probably Google it, where it'll allow you to almost um, uh, reverse image search a generative AI image, uh, and then also type in what engine was used to create that image, and it'll almost reverse engineer what that prompt was in order to get that image. It doesn't work yet with Firefly. I checked. It's not on there. Uh, yet. Uh, but I do think I, it's an entirely new muscle we we have to learn. And as far as best practices are concerned, it's 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 a whole process. There's there's also, um, you know, the ability of, of um, uh, uh, putting certain words within brackets uh, that that means uh, certain types of emphases uh, as you're building a lot of these prompts as well. But it's we're all learning this at the same time. I don't think anyone is a is a true bona fide expert. Yet. I love the term promptography. I mean, the th the first thing that it makes me think of is there is some guy. I think he's out of Denmark that has developed a device that he's calling like an AI camera. That's a lensless camera that just uses GPS coordinates and the angle in which you're looking at on a compass to generate imagery. So literally, as you're walking around, you can push the button. And it will actually generate an image based on what it knows of your current location and where, what direction you're facing. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. It's, it is definitely, you know, it's, it's, it's something new and we're all going to have to learn it. Yep. And that goes back to the, the thing I mentioned about search engines. <clears throat> so when I pop, typed into Google camera, no lens stuff, I find Betapixel, which is, I believe what you're talking about. Um, and that's something that if I did a search for, I would like a camera that doesn't have a lens and I can GPS. It, I've already put too much in there and, and I'm not going to get the results I, I want. Mm -hmm. That just comes from speaking Google. Eventually we will speak enough of promptography to understand what it is we need to say. Um, I know what I need to say now. We're, we're out of time. <laughs> um, so uh, if you've got questions, please continue to put them in the chat. We'll uh, get answers for you on some of those. Um, so also, if you are in Burbank, California in August, thing like Burbank, California in August, we're going to be hosting an editor's lounge here on Adobe and AI. Uh, registration link will go out in our follow-up email. So look for that. Jump on in and come on over. Uh, Morgan, Carl, thanks for joining me today. It's great to, to talk to you about things and stuff and robots and other things. Um, please... Uh, you know, like and subscribe and uh, join us for the next time. Thanks for watching Broadcast to Post. Please make sure to subscribe to the podcast to receive future episodes. Follow Keycode Media on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram to receive news on additional AV, broadcast, and post-production technology content. See you next time, folks.